any rate, this is where we're at in Ephesians, so you can kind of follow your thread back. Uh, we're kind of on this side of the equation over there. Uh, if we're in a, what I'm finding to be a very difficult part of Ephesians, uh, and it's difficult because I know what I think I believe and understand, and this part of Ephesians is a little bit unraveling, a little bit unsettling to me. Uh, it's, it's the tension we talked last week between our theology and then what the text says. So by theology, which we spent a lot of time on that last week, in fact it was, a, it was very much a topical lesson, and I'm going to start off with looking at the topic and then we will finally dive in to Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, beginning in verse probably 11 is where we'll kind of start to get a running start and work through part of the rest of the chapter on some level. But the idea is this, when you look at all this, we all have an approach, we all have a way in which we look at the Bible. You know, that way came to you, if, if you uh, grew up in church like I did, it came to you through your church tradition, it came to you from maybe your parents, it came to you from uh, the teachers that you had. They all taught you how to look at Scripture. Uh, they give you a lens, a framework for understanding the Bible. And, and a lot of times it makes sense, but then there's sometimes, if you've read the Bible, where it's like, I'm not sure how that fits with what I thought I knew. And so this part of Ephesians, for me, is especially challenging because I think I understand certain things, but I'm not entirely sure if the text is saying what I thought I understood. Now, if that's confusing to you, then at least you're sharing in my own confusion, because it goes something like that. Uh, let's start here. This is a slide I showed last week. It all starts with the Bible. Uh, if you're not starting with the Bible, then you've got a, a religion that is not even pretending to be based on what God gave. It's just what you decide is good in your own minds. But it So we should start with the Bible, and then what happens is a lot of people, because of the the way they've been raised, is then they move to systematic theology. Systematic theology means I have a system for understanding what I read in the Bible. Systematic theology, which I'll explain again, takes the Bible and, and puts it in topics. The Bible teaches us about God. Is that right or wrong? It's right. We call that, that would be very strictly theology. It's, it's thinking about God. The Bible tells us what to think about people. That's anthropology. The Bible has the topic of how should we think about ourselves. Uh, systematic theology says, well, the Bible teaches us what we should think about salvation. That's soteriology. It's the doctrine of salvation. The Bible teaches us what to think about the Holy Spirit. That's pneumology, not numerology. I think it's pneumology. PN, anyway, it's about, it's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us about the church. What does the church look like? This isn't my idea. This isn't, uh, you know, church father's idea. It's God's idea. So what does the Bible teach us about the church? That's ecclesiology. What does the Bible teach us about what hasn't even happened yet? That's eschatology. So all these are topics that's in a systematic theology. It's a system so that when you read in the Bible, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember. That's, that's the doctrine of the church. That's the doctrine of last things. That's the doctrine of man. That's the doctrine of him, uh, sin. 
and on and on it goes. But the problem is we shouldn't start there because even if you've read all the Bible, you've missed some parts. They just didn't register. Uh, you weren't ready to receive them. Uh, you could read the Bible every, every year all the way through and maybe you're like, uh, I forget the guy that read through the Bible like twice a year. Uh, but you could read the Bible every year and you're still missing parts. So it really starts with you keep reading the Bible. It starts with, I start with the Bible. What does the text say in the Bible? And then the more I understand what the Bible says, now I start putting it in different compartments. But you start with the Bible. You don't start with what you think you understand about the Bible. Hopefully that makes sense. And then you move on to historical theology and practical theology. And everybody has theology here, even if you didn't have the terms or the names for it. So last week, what I explained with biblical theology, that is you're examining the text of Scripture in context as a progressive narrative. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the, very, that's the very beginning of the narrative. And then the narrative ends at the end of Revelation, and it's this developing progressive story. And you're examining all the individual parts. So no matter how many parts you've examined to this point in your life, it would be like me when I'm trying to build something that's very complex. At the end of when I think I'm done, I found out I've got a lot of parts left. And I have no idea what to do with these parts. But presumably, they're in the diagram, and they should have been put somewhere. I just don't know where they belonged, and what am I supposed to do with them now? So whatever you understand about the Bible, it's because you've looked at parts... And some of those parts you've put in your system, but you've got parts left over you have no idea what to do with. In fact, there are parts you haven't even discovered because you've never read and, and registered yet in your mind. So understanding the Bible is a lifelong process is what I'm getting around to. You're always examining the individual parts of the Bible. But you take those parts and you put them together in a system, so that's where you assemble the parts and put them together. I know what God said about himself or how he re revealed himself in Genesis. That's a part. I know how he revealed himself to Abraham. That's a part. To Moses is a part. Uh, to the prophets, that's a part. To the apostles. He, he came at, uh, when the eternal Son of God was made man. That's telling me something about God. You've seen me, you've seen the Father is what Jesus said. So all those parts give me this doctrine of God. And you do that with all the parts all the time. Historical theology is what the church gives us. The church, uh, the, the historic church, takes all these individual parts. They recognize those. They take how the parts have been put together and then they put them in a form that's called a creed or a confession or a catechism. Now, I spent a lot more time on this last week. I'm not going to break it down. If, if, uh, if this seems like I'm rushing too fast, just review the message from last week, and I, I spent more time on that. But that's what the church gives us. Gives us. It takes these two theologies, puts them into creeds, confessions, and catechisms. And then at the top, last week I called it contemporary theology. 
This week I'm calling it, it goes by another name, Practical Theology. It's saying all that we've understood and examined and assembled together. Now what do we do at living in the 21st century? What does that look like in our culture? With our ideas about, our culture's ideas about God. What's society saying about God? What's society saying about life after death? And on and on it goes. That's Practical Theology. Next thing I want to Point two is that God's revelation was given as a narrative, not as a systematic. That's very important. When I, you know, we're in Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for a couple months. Every week I tell you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians, and we're learning parts within the framework of whatever systematic you have, but it's the parts that are most important. I don't tell you on a Sunday morning, now turn in your Bible to the doctrine of God. I don't say, okay, this week we're uh, talking about grace, so turning your Bible to the doctrine of uh, salvation. God didn't reveal himself that way. He didn't say, now, the first part I'm going to start with myself, and you're going to have a big long chapter or a book or whatever the case may be. Then I'm going to give you the doctrine of, of the Bible, how I reveal myself in the written word. Now God is going to reveal the doctrine of man. And now God's going to reveal the... He didn't reveal it as topics. He revealed it as a narrative. That's very important. And I'll tell you why. And it's going to sound a little bit harsh. And I I don't want it to sound as harsh as it's probably going to sound. Because I'm not completely dismissing topical understanding. Or certainly I'm not dismissing systematic theology. It's valuable. It's important. You just don't start there. It's not most important. So how do I view the Bible? If I view the Bible as starting with the parts, the text itself, rather than the lens that was given, handed down to me by my Lutheran forefathers and my Baptist forefathers, because that's my tradition, Lutheran for 10 years, Baptist the rest of the way. If I... uh, If I only view it through my system, I'm missing big parts. So, a systematic theology, if that's what I'm most devoted to, I'm probably going to teach a lot of topics all the time. If I'm more committed to biblical theology, I'm more committed to teaching verse by verse because we always are charged with looking at the parts, looking at the particulars. Now, again, I've done topical series here over the years. You're like, well, I've been here a couple of years. I don't remember one. Eh, there's some. We did one. We did kind of a topical, sort of a topical series before Good Friday, where we looked at the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. That was more of a topic, though we also were looking at verses. Uh, on Sunday nights for, I don't know how long it was. It was probably a year or so. We looked at a confession from the 1800s, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, which was very much a system. Here's what the the confession says about God. Here's what the confession says about the Scripture. Here's what the confession says about grace, and, and on and on. And it was fascinating. But that's not my bread and butter. As good as it is, as important as it is, it's not as important as looking at the text verse by verse. And here's what may sound harsh. And I, I don't, or if, if I always am thinking systematically, I'm teaching you what to think. 
here's the system, and here's how you should think. Uh, and what I'm saying, though I'm, I wouldn't verbally say this, and, and good people wouldn't, but what they're suggesting is the Bible contains the Word of God rather than the Bible is the Word of God. And there's a difference. If the Bible contains the Word of God, then what I'm doing when I teach topically is I'm taking out of the Bible this bit of truth, that bit of truth. I've assembled them together, and now I'm giving you the topic. I've assembled the pieces because the, the Word of God is in there. I've assembled them together, and now I'm giving them to you for your profit. The difference is, if I believe the Bible is the Word of God, it's less of my assembling and more just reading what God says in his narrative, verse by verse by verse. And when you do that, your apple carts will be upset once in a while. And things won't always fit very neatly into what you think you understand. Um, so my goal, ever since I got involved in pastoral kind of work, my goal is less to teach you uh, what to think and more to teach you how to think, how to look at the text verse by verse. And we got to deal with hard stuff, easy stu stuff we already agree with, but stuff we don't necessarily, the, we, you know, it's not how I tend to look at things. But that's treating the word of God as it ought to be treated. It, it's all inspired. And it was all given for a reason. Now, transition from that to uh, in, a, in a, the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's going to challenge the way you think. It's going to challenge your system, the first three chapters. The first three chapters are doctrine. And it's going to challenge what you think you know about things. Now, maybe you already found that in chapter 1. Like, he used words like predestined and chosen and, and grace and things, and it's like... That's not the system you grew up with, and that, that kind of was upsetting. For me, in chapter 2, it's, it's, it's upsetting what I'm reading in the second part of the chapter. It's a little bit upsetting to the way I was raised as a Baptist, what to think about the doctrine of future events and the nature of the church and its relationship to Israel. And you're like, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. That's okay. The point is, uh, it will challenge the way, the things that you think you understand those first three chapters. Then the next, the last three chapters, they're going to challenge your practical theology, how you think it should be lived out. Everybody here probably, I mean, probably you're here because you're interested in, in the Bible, you're interested in God, and you have an idea, what does a Christian look like? You're not coming here like, I have no clue how a Christian should live. The choices he makes, she makes, morality, Right and wrong. I have no idea about... You already have ideas about those things. What does a good Christian do? What are their priorities? What are their values? It will be challenged in the last three chapters of Ephesians. Because typically what I find when the Bible becomes very practical, its standard of holiness and godliness doesn't exactly fit the way I've accommodated my own interests. Uh, it's a little more challenging than what I want to apply to myself. So that's, that's, we're in chapter 2, so we're in the, you're being challenged in your thinking. You won't really be challenged in your living until chapter 4. Have you ever noticed how God takes his time? 
That is, God takes his time to deliver his message. The Bible's not a pamphlet. It's not a tract. It's not four points and you go to heaven. It's a big narrative. God takes his time developing this narrative to teach us and to communicate to us what we need to know. It's big. God takes his time uh, in fulfilling a lot of his word and his promises. Think how oftentimes the psalmist says, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. You know, you got to wait on the Lord. Sometimes, sometimes God is quicker than you would imagine, but for the most part, it seems like God is slower than what we want him to be. I mean, the church has been praying for 2,000 years that, would, that Christ would come back in power and glory. And for 2,000 years, starting with the apostles, they thought he would come back, I think, in their lifetime. We're still praying that, but the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's not slow. It's just not our timetable. We've only got so much time, and we want to avoid the procedure of dying. I do, too. But uh, the Lord is slow to deliver from our vantage point. He's slow in, in accomplishing what he said he would do, or even saying what he's going to do. Think of uh, Abraham was older than I was when God called him out of a land of idolatry, took him to another nation and said, I'm going to give you and your wife a child of promise because I'm going to do unbelievable things through that child. In him, who's not the Messiah, but yet through this child born, I'm going to bring the Messiah and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham's older than me, and he's promised this. And it's not until 25 years later that God delivers on that promise. So that tells you, Abraham, he was an old man, as was his wife, and it was a miracle. Well, Isaac was born, the child of promise. Isaac gets married at 40 years old. He marries Rebekah, and the promise is going to be carried on now through Isaac, originally given to Abraham, now Isaac. Isaac marries at 40, and he waits 20 years before they have another child. And there's actually two. It's twins, Jacob and Esau. And the promise is continued through Jacob. Um, you've got King David, who uh, the prophet and priest Samuel anointed with oil, saying, you are the Lord's chosen. You're going to be king over Israel. We saw... Israel saw what they got when they got to choose the king. It was Saul, and it didn't turn out well. So Samuel is sent to anoint a shepherd boy, the youngest child of Jesse. He's going to be king over Israel, and he waits 15 years before he ever assumes the throne in Israel. But the, I think it's the ultimate waiting example of God taking his... I'm going to not include Noah who's told about a flood, and it takes him 120 years before the flood comes. But a very notable one is Moses in Scripture. And this is actually going to apply to Ephesians in a moment, which is why I'm doing all this. But Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt. I mean, he's an important guy in one of the, if not the premier nation on the face of the earth at that time. Several, three, more than 3,000 years ago, Egypt is this, this world kingdom. And, and Moses is a prince in Egypt. But it comes into his mind at 40 years old 
to go visit his people. He sees one being abused by an Egyptian, and he slays the Egyptian. He kills him. Because it says in Acts, we're not going to turn there, but it says in Acts he imagined, he understood that God's going to use him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. Because that's the promise. Way back in the day, God told uh, Jacob and Joseph, you're going to go down to Egypt, you're going to be there hundreds of years, but I'm not going to leave you in Egypt, I'm going to bring you out. That's Moses. So Moses goes to visit his people. God's going to use me to bring them out. He kills an Egyptian, and the, and the Israelites are like, who appointed you judge over us? And he fears for his life, and he leaves Egypt to live in, a, in kind of a deserted area called Midian, and he spends 40 years. He's really not waiting because he thinks nothing's going to happen. But after 40 years in Midian, he finds out, oh no, God's going to keep his promise. It was just, you were just 40 years too soon. And so God raises up Moses to be his deliverer at 80 years old, not 40. Well, this is similar to, to Ephesians in that we're in these first three chapters where we're finding out all this, how should we think, especially about ourselves, and then especially about Christ, and what we're finding about ourselves is, in chapter 2, it's like, oh yeah, you're a dead sinner. And you followed the course of the world, and you were pursuing the desires and the fleshly interests of your heart. You were under the sway of the evil one, and okay, I got beat up that week. And, then the guy, and we're like, okay, but you're saved by grace through faith alone. Great news. Let's move into what, what it looks like to be saved by grace through faith. But that's really not till chapter 4. And God's like, I'm not done talking about how bad it was. It's like, no, we got how bad it was. No, God's like, you didn't get how bad it was. You're too, eat, you're too ready to move on from you were dead in your sin. I'm not done talking about how dead you were. Or how awful it was when I saved you. So I think sometimes we want to we wanna go on to like, well, so what are we supposed to do with all this? That we're learning about, these doctrines. And God's like, I'll tell you, wait, be patient. We'll get there, but not yet. I'm, to get a peek ahead, turn to chapter 4. This is, where, this is where Paul turns the corner and says, here's what we're supposed to do with this stuff. So chapter 4, verse 1, Paul starts off, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's practical. That's shoes on your feet. What do you do with what you know? But God's not ready to tell you that yet. He's not done telling you just things you need to know about yourself and about His Son and about His salvation, and all you need to do is know it and recognize it and believe it to be true. So we're still in the thinking stage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. I'm going to read these verses. It goes like this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He didn't tell me to do anything in that. And he didn't tell you to do anything in that. He just wants you to know something. And what he wants you to know, first of all, is what he's been telling us ever since he started this letter, is that this is all about Christ. Christ himself. You've kind of got this, it's, it's not like just a, a clever translation when it says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Because it could be rendered, oh, he's our peace. It's, he's actually emphasizing something and it's borne out in the Greek. It's, it's not just he is our peace, it's he himself is our peace. That's like something that's like, it's noteworthy. It's like gasp-worthy. It's like, you're telling me that God himself comes to earth to be our peace? And it's like, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful statement. It's actually kind of used three times in, in Ephesians chapter 2, the second half, where it's not just Christ, it's Christ himself did this. Nobody less and certainly nobody greater. Christ himself. And then the English Standard Version, the last part of verse 15, it says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. I'm not going to flat out say that's a poor translation. I just don't like what it seems to convey, at least to me. I don't like this idea of in place of the two. Because it sounds like there are no longer Jews and Gentiles. There's only this new category of persons called, I'll call them Christians, for the sake of our purposes here. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And I'll show you why. So, although there is some truth in what he is saying, go to Galatians chapter 3. So, you're in Ephesians. All you have to do, I didn't give you a page number if you're using a pew Bible. All you have to do is flip back a couple pages in your Bible. The book right before Ephesians is Galatians. And I'm going to have you look at chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to have you start at verse 23. Though the entire chapter is so applicable to what we're learning. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. That is, the Mosaic law was our guardian until Christ came. He's talking primarily to Jews here. In order that we might be justified by faith, because you're not justified by the law. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we would be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ, I think that's spirit baptism, not water baptism, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3 is that in Christ there is this new category of persons that is supersedes every other way that we distinguish ourselves. If this were a cons- very conservative uh, Jewish synagogue, the men would be on one side and the women would be on the other side because that's one way you distinguish people. Our culture is not so sure anymore. But for most of world history, you've got men and you've got women. Uh, For most of Jewish history, the categories are Jews and Gentiles. Uh, In the Roman world, a very important category would be slave and free. But Paul's saying there's, there's this category, faith in Christ, that's more important than anything that could possibly distinguish ourselves from one another. And that's to have faith in Christ. You have more in common than you could ever have separately. But... It doesn't mean a Jew stops being a Jew. Or a Gentile stops being a Gentile. Or a man stops being a man and a woman stops being a woman. Or a slave person stops being a slave. Or a free person stops being free. You still abide in that category on some level. It's just not that important compared to the new category of being in Christ as a Christian. So that Arnold Fruchtenbaum makes, no, here's, here's actually a, a, tr- a better translation. This is actually more in keeping with what Paul wrote in Greek. So Lexham English Bible reads that Christ uh, did this work in order that he might create two in himself into one new man, thus making peace. So it's not getting rid of the old categories. It's not saying now everybody's free or there's no longer men and women or there's no longer Jews and Gentiles, he's just saying out of these two, Jews and Gentiles, in himself, he creates one new man, thus making peace. So the new man is comprised of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, uh, male and female, but it's now this new, most important category that didn't exist prior to faith in Christ. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a Messianic Jew, says this, When a Jew becomes a believer, the New Testament never states he abandons his national standing. In fact, the New Testament views the believing remnant as always being within the nation, not outside of it. Which is pretty easy to bear out, especially in Romans chapter 9. You've got believing Jews and they are part of the remnant of unbelieving Israel. There's still a category of Israel. But you've got some of those that are believing who are part of this new thing that is is based on faith in Christ, but they're still part of the remnant or still part of Israel. The last point on all this is eventually Larry will be in Acts chapter 15 where the Jerusalem council gets together and they're deciding, uh, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles that have faith in Christ? Because there are some who are very zealous for the law that say uh, they need to become like Jews. And the council at Jerusalem with the apostles and the church leaders and the churches gathered and they decide, no, Gentiles don't have to become like Jews to worship God. They're right with God just by virtue of their faith in Christ. By the same token, Jews don't need to become like Gentiles. 
Now, there's still one category that's most important, that is faith in Christ. But how they worship in Africa is probably going to be different from the way we worship as Western Americans. How Gentiles worship is probably going to be different from the way Jews, when they gather, is a, is a believing assembly. How they Now, it doesn't mean you couldn't join an African fellowship or a, or a Messianic Jewish congregation, and it would probably be a, a, little, a little bit different style of worship and, and traditions. But the most important thing that binds us all together is faith in Christ, regardless of your background and what you're bringing to the table. Now let's build on this. Let's look at a few parallels, the big picture of what Paul's developing in Ephesians chapter 2. In the first 10 verses, he makes the statement, you were dead. He's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to these people. You, you Gentiles, let me tell you something, you were dead. And then he makes the statement, but God made us alive together with Christ. Now he's including the Jews too. The Jews were dead as well. Gentile, he's letting you know, you're Gentiles, you were dead. Now the Jews were dead too, but they were dead in a different way. They were dead in spite of all their advantages and blessings, but they were still dead. So Paul says, God made us alive. You Gentiles he made alive, the believing Gentiles are alive, the believing Jews are alive. And that's the common, the common aliveness we have by faith in Christ, which is demonstrated by our faith in Christ. So he includes both groups, but he's, he's addressing himself to the Gentiles. He's letting them know. Then, in the second half of the chapter, verses 11 to 22, now the emphasis is almost wholly shifted over to the Gentiles. Now he's going to specifically address, not, not that we were all dead and we all needed made alive, as dramatic as that is. Now he's saying, now I've got a word for you Gentiles. I want you to know something else, because I'm not done with you yet. You were separated, alienated, strangers, without God, uh, without hope. That's not true of the Jews. They had the prophets. They had the promises. They had the scriptures. That does not apply to the, Gen uh, the Jews. He's letting the Gentiles know, let me tell you, you had nothing. You were destitute. You didn't have any of those advantage that God selected for Israel as his chosen people. So you were separated, you Gentiles, and then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. Not we have been brought near, you've been brought near to where the Jews already were. Because now you have the scriptures. Now you have the promises. Now you have the new covenant which we celebrate whenever we observe the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant of his blood shed for us, that we would be called sons and daughters and forgiven sinners. So you were separated, alienated, but now in Christ Jesus, you've been brought near. You've, been, you've not only gone from death to life, you've gone from being an estranged outsider to being an insider just like you were a Jew to begin with. And he's going to develop all this in the second part of chapter 2. Let's start with the biography. Because uh, everybody here has got a story. I'm going to pretty much assume everybody here is a Gentile. And if you're a Gentile, your story is really not much different from my story. 
Now, I was raised in church. Uh, I, was, uh, I became a believer, I think, at 10 years old. Uh, you know, I had ups and downs. But, but no matter what kind of a Gentile you are, you all have the same story. And if this were a class, I could give an assignment, write your story, and you're going to have three points, and everybody's three points are going to kind of reflect those three points. It's, it's all the same. In some, on some level, it looks like this. The three points are this. We as Gentiles, here's our biography, according to the second part of chapter 2. At one time, you're going to tell your at one time story, and then you're going to tell your but now story, and then the third part of the story is, so then. That's your story. Everybody, every Gentile has that story who's a believer in Christ. Every Christian, every Gentile Christian, their story is at one time, but now, so then. Let's look at it. At one time, in verses 11 and 12, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If I reduce that down to one sentence, taking exactly what we just read in the text, it's therefore remember... That at one time, you Gentiles were separated, alienated, strangers having no hope and without God. That's your at-one-time story. That is my story. That is your story. The second part of the story, but now, verses 13 to 18. For time's sake, I'm just going to reduce it to my cliff sentence. So my, my cliff sentence, verse 13 to 18, I'm taking exactly what is in those verses. I'm reducing it down to one sentence, word for word. It reads like this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you've been brought near, for he himself is our peace. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You had a at-one-time story, now you've got a but-now story. And it's, it's exactly that statement in those verses. And then you've got the third part of your story, verses 19 to 22, so then. I'm going to reduce it down to one sentence, verses 19 to 22. All down to one sentence, taking exactly the words that are most important to make one sentence that looks like this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. At one time, but now, with this result. So then. So looked at another way, starts off with, there was one time you were outsiders and you were excluded. Just to let you know. God was not revealing himself to the United States of America. He didn't choose them to be his own chosen special people. Nor did he choose Egypt. Nor did he choose Iraq. Nor did he choose Arabia. Nor did he choose Babylon. Nor did he choose pick your nation. He chose Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So once we were excluded and outsiders, but now, because of Christ Jesus, the focus is on Christ, a difference has taken place. The difference isn't the Gentiles finally cleaned up their act. We finally got sick of ourselves. No, the difference is God gave his son and made us alive so that Christ became real to us because he sent the truth to us as Gentiles. So the difference maker is Christ, but now, so then, now we are included in a new community. 
this new community where in Christ there's no longer any advantage to being male or female or slave or free or Jew or Gentile. That brings nothing to the table to be in this new community. It's only faith in Christ, regardless of your background. Only faith in Christ. We are now included in a new community. The main verb in all of this is, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. That's the big idea in our biography. We once were far off, but guess what? We've been brought near, which begs a question. What are we brought near to? And there's two parts of the answer. The first answer is there's a vertical nearness, which goes to verse 16. Verse 16 says, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ cross, thereby killing the hostility. We have been brought near by Christ to God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who cannot so much as behold any wickedness. It is repulsive in his sight. We've been brought near to that holy God by faith in Christ. Doesn't make any difference whether you're Jew or Gentile. Doesn't make any difference what advantages you did or did not have by faith in Christ. You have been brought near by Christ to God himself. But the second part of that nearness is a horizontal nearness. And you can't miss it in the text. If you have, you've missed what the text is saying. You've not only been brought near to God, you've been brought near to where Israel already was. You're being brought near to where Israel already was. Before you were strangers, you were alienated, you weren't a part of something, but now you're part of what Israel already was a part of. This citizenship, this, this receptors of the scriptures, this household of God, which you read all through the Old Testament. Now you've been brought near to where Israel, where they already were, so that Christ would bring both believing Jews and Gentiles to God in whose image we were made. And essentially, I'm out of time, though I really wish I could go a lot farther. <laughs> um, but I think I will stop here and open it up for comments or questions. Jonathan. Both. Both are true. It's not either or. There is a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. There's also a dividing wall between all peoples and God. The, it seems like the emphasis ultimately is it, it, uh, it is definitely more. Like the ultimate goal is to get rid of anything that would serve as a barrier between God and yourself. That's the ultimate goal. That's verse 16, that he might bring you both to God. But first, the barrier is horizontal, and now you're brought near to where Israel already was. Both are true. In, in the new, in the air, because they're trying not to be offending the Jews, that, that's a difference. If they think, I, I agree, if they think, I don't eat bacon because God has forbidden me to eat bacon, I think they're wrong. Yeah, exactly. And I had a very interesting discussion with Igor, and I very much disagree with Igor, <laughs> as much as I like Igor. Uh, because I think he's a fascinating individual. But I explored this topic with him a little bit, and I found his, his uh, 
his explanation, his, his persuasion, I found it very unsatisfying. I also found it very interesting, the text that he chose to use. But Igor is a great guy in a lot of ways. But right, Mosaic law has been done away with. Terry. Um, yeah, that's, that's very complicated and nuanced. I'm, I would have to really pick that apart, you know, because you're talking about the vine image in John. You're talking about the olive tree root and branches in Romans. I'm not sure they're exactly equivalent, but th it's very nuanced, uh, and there's value in what you're saying, but I think it would be hard to explore that uh, for my purposes. <laughs> uh, the main thing, I mean, right now the main takeaway is, is God's progressing revelation, what he's revealing about himself, ourselves, salvation, peace with God, it has everything to do with Christ. It has nothing to do with your contribution. And that faith in Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile or whatever your background is, put you in this new category, this new community, this new creation that God has, whereby it, it, every other category that distinguish us, distinguishes us or by which we think we're distinctive, it just, it's not important. It's just not important in Christ. Um, I really had more, but I'm out of time. So anybody else have a... Uh, we'll develop this more next week. Carrie? Yes. Uh, actually, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, what I'm going to say, good, uh, the right understanding of the Bible is it's already not yet. That's a famous saying. R.C. Sproul would have used it. Most of the people I read the most use it. We already have what God has accomplished, but not yet in its final form. So it's, we're not necessarily, we're not just waiting for something to happen. We, we already are in the new covenant. We already have all those advantages, but it's not yet brought to its full completion. So it's already not yet. I think I can add one more thing. Oh, two things maybe. The Gentiles are brought near to Israel in Christ to share in its covenants, promise, hope, and God. They do not become Israel. They share with Israel. They share what Israel already had. And Moses in Deuteronomy, as he's getting ready to exit the scene, he makes a very statement. It's a, a beautiful statement in Deuteronomy to the people that are going to enter the promised land. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? There's no Gentile nations that could say that. What other nation on the earth has had a God so near to us as the Lord... That's only Israel. Israel's always been near to God. I'm not saying they are all saved. But Israel as a category of people had a nearness to God that no other nation on the face of the earth enjoyed. And now Gentiles are near to God in the way that Jews always were. But both require faith in Christ to be part of the new community. Both require faith in Christ to be part of the new community. Um, and I'm going to close. I'm going to start my five-minute timer in just a second. So just by way of this probably won't mean much to many people, and it may not be news to the people that do understand what I'm saying, but so far as uh, I, I was raised a very traditional dispensational Baptist. I, I'm not 
that traditional dispensationalist. I think they, they were too far in their eschatology, figuring everything up, Israel and the church being different, and, and their understanding of all the particulars. I'm just not there. Uh, I'm also not a traditional covenant theology, where the church is Israel, and they're the same. And there's, there's no distinction at all on any level in God's plan or program. I think both were too far off. I'm somewhere in the middle, which a lot of good people are gravitating to for what it's worth. Uh, it's called either progressive dispensationalism rather than traditional. It's more centered. Or new covenant theology, which is more centered from uh, traditional covenant theology. I'm somewhere in the middle. And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. Uh, I barely, well, I, I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about. I just know, I know more what I'm uncomfortable with than what I think is the right resolution to the whole matter. But let me uh, close in prayer and I'll start my timer. God, I thank you for Scripture and I pray that when we come before Scripture, whether it's together as a church, which is really unique and special, and I pray that we appreciate it as we ought, or whether it's in our own private devotions.